God's word from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can be seated. Before we look to God's word, let's uh, go to him in prayer. Almighty and most merciful God, we know, Lord, that your word is more desirable than gold, even precious gold. It's sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the honeycomb. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to us now out of your word, out of Psalm 23. May it nourish our lives, may it transform our hearts, and may we fall deeper and deeper in love with the Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, well, it's before I get started, it's been, it's been fantastic to uh, be with you the last couple of weeks to bring God's word out of Psalm 23. I've enjoyed getting to know some of you and even this morning seeing some new faces. And the worship band has increased like fourfold since we started. So I think it's sounding great. It's sounding awesome. So uh, appreciate you showing up this morning and being with us. And you have the opportunity and privilege for the next couple of weeks, I think, to hear from my good friend, uh, Joel Fitzpatrick. And I know that'll be really refreshing and good. And he's a phenomenal guy, one of my, one of my close good friends. So uh, you're going to be blessed to hear from him in the next couple of weeks. Well, as, the past few weeks we've been listening and learning from Psalm 23. And it's a travel log of sorts. The poem kind of involves... Uh, uh, sort of the ordinary journey that a sheep might take in the Judean hills of Palestine. And yet, as most of you know, and I think are familiar, it's, it's really a metaphor for God and his relationship with human beings, with people like you and me. And it's all about God. That's what Psalm 23 is, is, is about. It's all about him. And so, Psalm, and so being that it's all about God, it offers us I think, answers and resources to some of life's ultimate questions, which are true and relevant at all times and places. It doesn't matter what culture or society you live in. These are ultimate questions that Psalm 23 seeks to answer. And yet, I think more closer to home, and particular to 2020, uh, this year, I know at least for me and people I talk to, uh, has been a year where our false shepherds have sort of been exposed. What do I mean? Uh, Well, the poet in Psalm 23 is indirectly showing us that anyone or anything that we turn to for comfort or success or security or hope uh, that isn't the God of the Bible, that isn't the shepherd in Psalm 23, will ultimately lead us to frustration and emptiness and ruin. And I think 2020 has both on a national scale and deep inside each of our homes and each of our hearts... Uh, expose some of the things that we look to for hope and how those things I think consistently do they not come up short 
So Psalm 23 invites us, it invites you and me this morning to consider this shepherd, but also I think do more than just consider him, actually follow him, and I think more than just follow him, feast with him. So as I said, Psalm 23 offers us uh, some of the answers to life's big questions. Politically, as Carl prayed uh, just a few moments ago, we're facing big questions nationally and as citizens of you know maybe you're maybe you're not a citizen here but particularly if you're a citizen of the united states uh what's the direction of this country who should i vote for uh what's best for those closest to me my family but also my neighbors uh who may live different lives than i do who have maybe different priorities those are important questions but personally i think we deal with questions that are if not if not as big maybe even bigger, uh, life-shaking, earth-shattering questions, things like this. Am I in the right career? Is my job secure? Will I ever find someone to love? Did I marry the right person? When will the hurt go away? Am I doing enough for my kids? Those are, I mean, those are questions that are maybe even more significant, right? More relevant to us than who gets into office, as, as important as that question is. Psalm 23 doesn't answer all of those, but it does, I think, give us hope. It gives us rock-solid hope. And so that's what I want to explore this morning, what, what hope looks like in Psalm 23. And I want to do that with just two questions. First, what is my destination? And then second, how do I get there? What's my destination and how do I get there? So let's just take each of those questions in turn. What's my destination? You need to know the destination, right, for any trip. Uh, you need to know where you're headed. Most of that is just, I think, common sense, but there's psychological reasons for that too. When the journey involves inconvenience, when it, when it involves detours, when, it, when, when there's danger on that road ahead of you, you need to know that the destination is worth it. Our kids, I think for those of you who are parents, they learn that at a young age. Anytime that we've traveled with our kids, whether it's 60 minutes to Disneyland or six hours to grandpa and grandma's, uh, that's what I instinctively turn to when the boredom begins to take over and they begin hitting each other in the back seat. Uh, I, be, I say stuff like, we're almost there. And it's going to be awesome when we get there. There's churros at Disneyland and there's amazing rides, right? They, you need to know the destination. It can pull you through. What's the destination in Psalm 23? The, the poet in Psalm 23 says the destination is home. The destination is home. And you could read the entire Bible through that lens, the lens of home. That's what that reflection quote at the beginning of our service, uh, that's what it said. From Genesis to Revelation, you could read the entire Bible as a story of homecoming. Right in the beginning, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who, who dwell in an unimaginable delight and joy and happiness, they make a perfect home. God takes the emptiness and he fills it up. He takes the nothing, he makes everything. And he did that because he wanted people like you and me, he wanted you to share the joy and happiness of his eternal home. And so he made a world. He made a beautiful world, a perfect world where there was no sadness, there was no, there was no disease, there was no crying. But what happens? What happens in the, in the opening pages of the Bible? 
the story says that the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They, they try and make the dream of a perfect home true without God. They don't want God in the picture. They forget God. They run from God. And what happens? We find out that they need to leave the garden. They're kicked out. They're evicted. And the rest of the story uh, really, I think, could be summarized as a kind of homecoming. The rest of the Bible is a story of us trying to get back home. Think about it. In Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, people are trying to build heaven on earth. They're trying to make a home. And then the very next chapter, Genesis 12, you read about the story of this man, this old man named Abraham, uh, who leaves his home and becomes a wandering nomad, seeking a home, seeking a country. The story of Israel is about a whole nation that's driven out of Egypt and into a wilderness. And they're on a journey towards a promised home. One of Jesus' best-known parables in Luke 15 is about a young man who runs away from home. And then long after he hits the bottom, he decides to return home. And even in, we read at the very end of the Bible, in our call to worship in Revelation, you read about a home coming down from heaven. God dwelling with his people. That's the goal. That's the point of the story. So see what Psalm 23 is saying is, the, and the whole Bible I think is showing you, you and I need a home. And man, that hits me on a sort of like deep, guttural, like visceral level. That longing for home. I try and read a lot. I love reading. Uh, I try to do that a lot. And usually every year, I come across a book that just, just blows me away. And a couple of years ago, that book was a book by a journalist, Matthew Desmond, called Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. And it's an extraordinary work of journalism. Uh, it's, it's both fascinating and extremely gut-wrenching. And it's Desmond's account, it's a journalist's account of the epidemic of eviction in the United States seen through just one city, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, he explores kind of both sides of the track, literally. Uh, he, he goes and literally lives in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in North Milwaukee. And then for a season goes and lives in a predominantly uh, white trailer park in South Milwaukee. <laughs> It's 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 utterly compelling. I would I would I would uh, I would commend it. And towards the end of the book, Desmond, the journalist, he he is so compelling when he talks about home. Listen to some of his words. He says, "Home is the center of life. It is a refuge from the grind of work, the pressure of school, the menace of the streets. We say that at home we can be ourselves. Everywhere else we are someone else. At home we remove our masks." The home is the wellspring of personhood. It's where our identity takes root and blossoms, where as children we imagine, play, and question, and as adolescents we retreat and try. As we grow older, we hope to settle into a place, to raise a family, or pursue work. When we try to understand ourselves, we often begin by considering the kind of home in which we were raised. In languages spoken all over the world, the word for home encompasses not just shelter, but warmth safety, family. The home remains the primary basis of life. It is where meals are shared, quiet habits formed, dreams confessed, traditions 
created. I love that. I don't know if that language, it, it, at least for me, it evokes something for me. It stirs up a kind of longing in my own heart. So what, where is home? What is home? It's more than a house. It's more than just a location. Home is the place that you belong. It's a place where you are completely accepted. I love uh, the, the words of Robert, Robert Frost. He was an American poet. He said, home is the place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. When you have to go there, they have to take you in. That's what home is. Home is the place where you can be yourself. And I mean really yourself. It's the place where everything fits. Uh, this, fam- uh, this week, actually, our family moved uh, homes. Uh, we were staying with my mom for the last couple of months, and we moved into our home in San Diego, the home we purchased a number of years ago. And uh, it's, it just feels right. When you come home, it just feels right. It's the place where the meal is ready, where people run out to greet you, where you're expected. And some of us, I think, are nostalgic about that. You maybe grew up and you had a great home life. You were seen by your family members, by loved ones, and you were secure. You were truly known and you were deeply loved and enjoyed. And others of us, I think, uh, never really had that. We either were known and not loved, or we were superficially loved but felt like we never were really understood. Or maybe you weren't seen and you weren't cared for at all. And we tend to, I think those of us who grew up in those kinds of homes, we tend to look uh, with jealousy or maybe even a little contempt at what other people had in a home life. And you feel a profound sense of regret or loss or maybe even cynicism. But no matter how great your home life was growing up or maybe how bad, uh, this, this Psalm 23 is talking about the home that you are looking for. The home that you're yearning for, the thing, that homeness that you are, that you are longing for, and yet it comes up short over and over again. And it, and these are some examples that I thought of this week. It's that sense where you first fall in love or that acceptance letter you get to that school that you have been working hard to get into, or perhaps you're hired by that company or organization that you had your your eyes set on, your heart set on, or you find that perfect church, or you get into the house of your dreams, or the vacation that you've been planning for decades. But you all, I think you all know the experience. Once you find that perfect soulmate, or you get into the house, or you go on that vacation, right when you think you have it, it eludes you. Or you wake up and the vacation is over and you're back to the grind on Monday morning. Or you move into that perfect home, this is my experience this week, and the toilet is leaking. Mm-hmm. Or the dryer, the dryer connection doesn't work and I need to make 16 trips to Lowe's to figure out which is the right one. Or the restaurant doesn't live up to the reviews. We've all had those experiences. And this is true, um, I think we all know this, this is true of celebrities and the rich by far. How many interviews have you read or seen by the rich and powerful that say something like this, I had it all, I could travel anywhere I wanted, I could sleep with whomever I liked, I could live wherever I pleased, I could acquire anything that my heart desired, and yet at the end of the day I was still unhappy. I've read dozens of those interviews 
by celebrities, by actors and actresses who had it all, who from the outside seemed to have everything together and they still had this deep discontent in their hearts. We are all of us, all of us, lost children yearning for home. And you know, I think it's not the only reason to accept Christianity. It's not the only reason to build your life on Jesus, but it's a really good one because it makes sense of that longing, that yearning for home that we all have. C.S. Lewis, who was a a writer and an apologist for Christianity, he says in one of his most well-known books, Mere Christianity, he says, the Christian says this, this I'm quoting, he says, the Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so... I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. That's a long quote, but what he's saying is you were made for a true country, a true and better country. You were made for a true and lasting home. And don't quelch that desire. Don't try to squash it by thinking that this is the real thing here and now, but set your hearts on that true and better home. Friend, you were meant to live forever with God and with loved ones. You were designed to dwell secure in a place where you belong, in a place where you're really known and truly loved. You were made to enjoy, as Psalm 23 says, to enjoy a forever feast where the party never ends and the wine never runs out. That's what Psalm 23 says. That's your destination. How do you get there? We all want that. Deep down, we all know that that's true. We're looking for it everywhere and coming up short. How do you get there to the home that Psalm 23 is telling you about? Well, I think it suggests the right path. Uh, There's a right path to follow, and Psalm 23 suggests it. First, you have to follow the shepherd of Psalm 23 comprehensively. You know, sheep are utterly dependent for everything all of the time on their shepherd. We've, we've spent the last couple of weeks, if you were here with us, we looked at that in great detail. Uh, there's not one aspect of the life of a sheep that they can manage on their own. As we've seen, they either get lost, they eat the wrong thing and die, they fall off the cliff, or they become prey to wolves or a lion or a bear or something like that. That's the Bible's way of saying to you, there's no aspect of your life that you are in control of. There's no sphere of your life in which you can say, this is off limits to the shepherd. This is mine and mine alone. You must follow this shepherd comprehensively. 
just like a sheep would rely completely, utterly on its shepherd. That's the first thing. You have to follow the shepherd comprehensively. But second, you have to follow the shepherd unconditionally. Sheep don't talk back to the shepherd. They obey if they know what's good for them, right? And what's good for them is known not by them, but by the shepherd. He he knows the lay of the land. He knows what predators are out there. He has the right defensive defenses. Sheep don't have any of that. See, we have a tendency, I think, I have a tendency to follow God when it's convenient. When things are going well, when we're not facing a year like 2020, when the cost is low. But when the chips are down, when the trials are in my life, when the testing comes, what happens? I go my own way. We go our own way. But remember who God is. He's not a personal assistant. He's not a secretary that you can call and have him like help out with your life here and there. He's your shepherd. He's your shepherd. He's the Lord. He's the king. And the Bible says that the only way that you get back home, the only way you arrive at your destination, the only way that you make it out of the valleys and out and through the treacherous paths and to safety and security is if you obey God unconditionally. So you've got to follow the shepherd comprehensively. You've got to obey him unconditionally. But third, you have to know the shepherd personally. You know, this shepherd doesn't just demand your obedience. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He doesn't just give you a checklist and then say, perform and obey. He wants your affection. He wants to be the source of your delight. Parents know this instinctually. We don't just want our kids to follow the rules. We want them to run out and hug us when we come home. We don't just want a spouse that pays the bill and folds the laundry and runs the errands, but the spouse that loves us, that really loves us. See, the shepherd doesn't just want sheep that follow him. He wants friends to feast with. That's what, saw, that's what verses 5 and 6 are all about. The poet moves from language about sheep to, uh, to imagery about feasting and dining together. A sheep, a sheep does not sit at table with you. A sheep does not share a meal with you. A sheep doesn't dwell in your house. But you know what? A friend does. A child does. A spouse and a lover does. God says the first and great command is to love him with everything that you are. To love him comprehensively, unconditionally, personally. So friends, the question is, how is that working out? How's that working out? Loving God comprehensively, unconditionally, personally? Be honest with yourself for a moment. If you're really honest with yourself, you know that that's horrible news. Because if that's the way, if the way to our destination, if the way to security and eternal happiness and joy is based on my comprehensive, unconditional, personal obedience, then I'm in big trouble. But friends, there's good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of God, He left His eternal home. He left His home. He was the joy and delight of His Father, and He left the security and comfort of that, and He became a sheep. God became a human being. 
and throughout Jesus's entire life. Do you know what? Do you know what he did? He followed God comprehensively. He obeyed God unconditionally. There was no aspect of Jesus's life that wasn't submitted to the Father. There was, he, had, he reserved nothing. He gave it all to his Father. His whole life was perfect and perpetual obedience. But it was more than that, right? If you read the Gospel accounts, right, you know this. There was a deep intimacy that Jesus shared with his Father. He didn't just obey his Father. He loved his Father. He had an intimacy and a delight in God, a connection with God that was shocking, even to Jesus' contemporaries. No one ever spoke the way that Jesus did about God. No one ever spoke about the God of the Old Testament in the terms that Jesus did. So you see, friends, Jesus fulfilled this. He was on the right path. He obeyed God comprehensively and unconditionally and personally. And where did that get him? Where did it get Jesus? It got him nailed to the cross. It left him crucified, hanging in bitter agony and alone, rejected by his people, mocked by his enemies, deserted by his friends. And at the very end of his life, Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why am I evicted? Why was I kicked out of the house? And you know why, don't you? This Jesus was the perfect sheep And yet it wasn't goodness and mercy that pursued him. It was agony and immense suffering. Why? Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, was cast out so that you could be brought in. He was forsaken so that you could belong. He was cursed so that you could be blessed. He was evicted eternally on the cross so that you could have a home. It was so that wherever you find yourself today, you can know, you can really know that goodness and faithful love will pursue you always. See, the translators of verse 6 botched it. Translators are great. They do a phenomenal job of translating the scriptures, but they're not perfect. They're not perfect. And the word isn't mercy in verse 6. It's a Hebrew word. uh, The Hebrew word is hesed. It has to do with God's covenant love and loyalty. It's what one author says is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. So friends, Jesus, when Psalm 23 says Jesus is your shepherd, it's saying that's what pursues you. That's what follows you. That's what's driving you all the way home, all the way to your destination. Not your obedience or your performance, not how dedicated you are, not how well you've lived your life, not what kind of spouse or parent or employee you are, not whether you've done your quiet times. Christianity is fundamentally, ultimately, all about God's faithful, never-stopping love. That's what starts the Christian life. That's what gets you going. It's what keeps you going. And it's what brings you home at the end of the day. See, it's the shepherd who prepares the table. The shepherd who leads. The shepherd who protects. The shepherd who restores. Not your achievement. His. Not your performance. His. Friends, Jesus lived 
perfectly. He died sacrificially and he rose victoriously so that stupid, sinful, lost sheep could become not just his flock, but his friends, his family. He wants to dine with you. He wants to dwell with you in his forever home. (coughs) Friends, this right here and right now is not all that you are. It's not all that you will be. You are destined for greatness. You're destined for joy. You're destined for home. And friends, let me invite you to trust this shepherd, trust this Jesus to bring you there. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the good shepherd. You've given what was most precious to you to secure the life of us. You've given us Jesus, who who is the good shepherd. He's the shepherd that lays down his life in the place of his sheep. He died the death that we deserved. He lived the life that we were supposed to live so that we could be brought in, so that we could be made secure in an eternal home. And Father, he didn't hold anything back. And so we know that we can trust him with our lives We can trust him with our career. We can trust him with anything that comes our way this year or the next. In three days, Father, when the election happens, we can trust our nation. We can trust our homes. We can trust everything into the hands of this Jesus, who is not just a lamb, but is now King of kings and Lord of lords. He has conquered the grave, and so there's no enemy that is not now under his feet. Father, we are so grateful. We're so thankful for that good news. Press it into our hearts. Make it real to our lives. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen.